there is an ad hoc. Uh, did somebody lower this? <laughs> there is an ad hoc uh, men's group in this church called the Presbyterian Stogie Society. They will be meeting this afternoon. For those of you who are attuned to that group, just giving you a little advance warning there. Seth Fluter got a new gas heater and he wants to fire it up out in his backyard. So, so we'll be there, right, Tom? We'll be there. All right. Holy Ghost will be there too. All right. Um, our second reading is only going to come into your ear. It's not going to be on the screen. You can find it in your pew Bible. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of John chapter 7. I'm going to begin at verse 14 and I'm going to read all the way to verse 36. All right? Verse 14 to verse 36, so make yourself comfortable. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but it's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, in you is our hope. We thank you that you have provided your word for us. We pray this morning that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that this word would come to life and make sense for us in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the 23 uh, verses in our reading this morning from the Gospel of John contain no fewer than six distinct and preachable ideas. Now, I'm not going to preach on all six of these ideas. I'm going to briefly touch on five of them, and then I want to address the sixth one a little bit more fully. Our focus this morning will be on verse 17, which offers an insight into how we can know if Jesus is who he says he is, and how we can know if what he says is true. I can't imagine... A pair of more important questions. Is Jesus who he says he is? And is what he says true? Verse 17 answers this pressing question of how can I know? And Jesus' surprising answer is, If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will know. Listen to that again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you'll know by looking at my miracles. Jesus doesn't say, you'll know when you notice my careful exegesis of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't say, you'll know when you listen to my folksy parables. Jesus doesn't say, you'll know when you finally realize that I'm a nice guy and I gave you free bread. Strangely, the answer to the question, is Jesus who he says he is and is what he says true, lies not with Jesus, but it lies with us. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. The upshot of what Jesus is saying is that our ability to know God depends upon the condition of our hearts. Our ability to know God depends upon the condition of our hearts. If we are willing the right things, and that's a matter of the heart, then we will know God. As it turns out, Jesus is just repeating what God said back in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. Let me be really blunt. If you haven't found God yet, if you haven't found God yet, it's because you haven't been looking for him or You've been looking for him in a half-hearted way. If your will is to do God's will, you will know. When you seek God with all your heart, you will find him. As some of you know, I am a converted atheist. And I taught philosophy to undergraduates for 10 years. 
So I understand that there are real questions regarding how we can rightly know things about God. Knowing God is very different from knowing the Super Bowl score. I get that. But I think that some very smart people make the very dumb mistake of looking for answers about God in the wrong place. The great philosopher and diehard atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing before God on Judgment Day and God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? Russell answered, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Now, Russell's answer is kind of funny. It shifts the burden of proof to God. God has to prove himself to Professor Bertrand Russell. Maybe Russell would like to see his birth certificate. But I think God's rebuttal would be, you aren't really looking, Bertrand. And your heart was in the wrong place the whole time you pretended to look. I know that that's what God would have said to me, During the decade, I wandered in the atheist wilderness. You weren't really looking. And your heart was in the wrong place the whole time that you pretended to be looking for me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, Jesus said, he will know. You will seek me and you will find me, God says, when you seek me with all of your heart. I hope those words are words of encouragement for you this morning because it is possible to really know God. But we need to acknowledge that our ability to know God depends upon the condition and the posture and the position of our hearts. If we are willing the right things, then we will know God. If we seek God with our whole being, we will find him. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 7, 17. And that's what I want to dig into this morning. But before we do that, just as a due diligence, I want to briefly touch on the other five distinct ideas that show up in this passage. Ideas that we won't develop in the course of this sermon. Uh, in your bulletin, if you, have a, if you have a bulletin, I always find it very useful to have a bulletin. There is an insert in there. I would advise you to pull it out. It's an insert of the reading. And you'll notice that on this insert, I've rearranged the verses. I've arranged them according to these six ideas. The biblical text actually weaves them together. But if you're curious about these six ideas, I've kind of grouped them together for you. Now let me run through them as quick as I can. The first theme is that Jesus doesn't speak for himself, but he speaks for the Father. Jesus has already said this a bunch of times in the Gospel of John. The subject comes up again in verse 15 when the crowd says, in effect, Wow, listen to this guy Jesus teaching. How can he do that since he hasn't been properly educated? And Jesus' answer is, My teaching is not my own, but is his who sent me. The second theme is this uh, plot to kill Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus blurts out, why do you seek to kill me? And the people think that he's paranoid, they think that he's crazy, they think he has a demon. But as the passage unfolds, it becomes clear that Jesus was right. And the officials of the temple had, in fact, sent out officers to arrest him. In time, of course, they will succeed in killing him. 
The third theme is healing on the Sabbath. You remember that story uh, of the crippled man who's next to the pool. He's been there for 38 years, lying next to the pool, waiting to be healed. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And then Jesus tells him, take up your bed and walk. That day happened to have been a Sabbath day. And there was immediate controversy about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Which some people at that time thought was a violation of the law of Moses. Okay, that discussion continues here in this passage with four verses this morning. The fourth theme is the identity of the Messiah. The identity of Jesus has been the main theme throughout the Gospel of John. But the identity of the Messiah, as prophesied in the Scriptures, is a different matter. A couple of verses are dedicated to the identity of the Messiah and the question of whether or not Jesus could be the Messiah. And finally, the fifth theme is the disappearing Jesus. In verse 34, Jesus says, You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am, you cannot come. And then we have four verses uh, in our reading which speculate about what it is that Jesus could possibly mean. Okay, those are the five themes I'm not going to talk about uh, this morning. I want to get back to this one verse, which I think is the heart of this passage and is tremendously important for anyone who has honest or serious questions about faith or how it is that we know God. Verse 17 says, if anyone, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus, of course, has been preaching and teaching for about three years at this point. He and his message are well known throughout the land, throughout throughout Judea and Galilee. And while there is an undeniable force... To what Jesus taught, there were those who had doubts. Jesus, of course, had upset the religious status quo. What he taught did not align with what the scribes and the teachers of the law had been teaching in the temple. And on top of all of that, there is Jesus' claim that he is the Son of God and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. The Jews of Jesus' time were actively looking for the Messiah. There was a great longing for the Messiah to come and inaugurate his kingdom. And when distinctive prophets rose up, there was speculation. Could he be the one? You'll remember that people wondered if John the baptizer might be the Messiah. So these questions about Jesus... Is he teaching God's own truth? Is he who he says he is? These are valid questions. And in verse 17, Jesus answers these questions by saying, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. Jesus says that our starting point in answering these kinds of questions must be a fundamental commitment to doing God's will. And he says that if we are committed to doing God's will, then we will understand the truth about God. Jesus is pointing out that what we want can influence what we believe. What we want can influence what we believe. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But I have to tell you that it makes perfect sense to me. Because it exactly describes my own journey away from faith... And then back to faith. 
Let me see if I can explain this. I was raised in a Bible-believing church. My parents were missionaries. My father was ordained at Bethel Temple on Allegheny Avenue back in 1952. I was raised on the scriptures. I learned to read out of a hymn book. I made a conscious, informed commitment to follow Jesus when I was 9 or 10 years old. And then I was baptized. And throughout my teenage years, I studied and I believed the Bible. But then something began to turn in me. What I wanted no longer was in line with what I had been raised to believe. Any Christian knows that the ongoing, knows the ongoing struggle between what Paul calls the flesh and the spirit. Any Christian, no matter what age they are, knows the tug of war between what we know is the right thing to do the godly thing to do, and what we want to do in the moment. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do what you want. In this passage, the spirit represents all of those things that we know we should do. And the flesh represents all of those things that we want to do in the moment. Any Christian with the least bit of self-awareness knows that these two things, the flesh and the spirit, don't always line up. They don't always agree. So there's tension between the two and there's a tug of war. There's a war of wills inside of us. And the question of who will win, the flesh or the spirit, remains uncertain in any given moment. Sometimes we do the right things, but sometimes we don't. All of us have this experience. Here's Paul's list of the things that belong to the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And here's Paul's list of the things that belong to the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's Galatians 5, 19 and 21. The fruit of the Spirit agrees with the will of God, and the works of the flesh are contrary to the will of God. So let's circle back now to John seven seventeen, where Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. On the one hand, if anyone's will, if anyone's desire, if anyone's intention is to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they will know. That Jesus' teaching has come from God. On the other hand, if anyone's will, if anyone's desire, if anyone's intention is to pursue sexual immorality and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalry and envy and drunkenness and all those sorts of things, then they will not know that Jesus' teachings have come from God. 
I have been raised in the church. I knew what the Bible teaches, but then I turned away. I stopped going to church and I began to pursue those things that Paul puts on the list of the works of the flesh. Well, not all of them. I was never very much interested in sorcery, but all the rest. In my head, I need to tell you, in my head, I continued to believe all the right things. All the things that the scripture teaches, all the things that I learned in Sunday school. But my desire, my will, my behavior looked more and more like Paul's flesh list than his spirit list. I was believing one way and living another. And that creates an uncomfortable tension. Because no one really likes to think that the way they're living is bad or wrong. And then I went off to college. Where I met a lot of very smart professors. Who were happy to teach me that the problem was not with the way that I was living. But with the way that I was believing. If I would just abandon all of those quaint ideas that you find in the Bible, then there would be no conflict. I could do whatever I wanted. And they won the day. Let me give you the philosophical upshot, the epistemological upshot of what happened to me. Though I imagined that I was being liberally educated and learning to believe what was objectively true, I was abandoning those outdated and subjective ideas from the Bible. In fact, what happened was that I adopted a new mythology. A mythology that allowed me to do whatever my flesh wanted to do. And to believe that what I was doing was right. In other words, what I believed was determined by what I wanted to believe. Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. My will was not to do God's will. I knew what God's will was. God's will was all about love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control. What I willed was immorality, impurity, sensuality, strife, anger, envy, drunkenness. We humans have a tremendous capacity to believe what we want to believe. And because what Scripture teaches about God's will was clearly in conflict with my will, and because it is no fun thinking that I'm out of step with God, I convinced myself, with the help of some very willing professors, that what Scripture teaches about God was just a lot of hooey. And finally, that they're simply isn't a God. Because how could there be an all-powerful, all-good being who doesn't agree with me? God forbid. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. So what does this mean for us this morning? Well, knowing God is really important. Understanding who Jesus is, is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. This morning, if you are wrestling with real questions about God, then I first want to encourage you that it is possible... 
to know the truth and to know it with confidence. No, we won't ever fully understand God, but we can know Him well enough. We can know Him in a way that will transform our lives. We can know with confidence that we enjoy His favor, that He's adopted us as sons and daughters, that we will one day spend eternity with Him. But how can we know? How can we be certain? This morning we saw two keys to knowing God. One from Jesus and one from the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus tells us that if we will what God wills, then we will know. You and I already know the kinds of things that God wills. You and I already know what kinds of things God opposes. If you are willing the things that God wills, even if you aren't doing those perfectly, I'm not saying you have to be perfect... If you're willing the things that God wills, God will show himself to you. And you will understand the truth. But if you will the things that God opposes, don't be surprised that you never understand or know God. Because the desires of your heart won't allow you to accept that truth. That was my problem for 10 years. If you want to pursue a life of drunkenness and sexual debauchery, then it will be no wonder if your ears are closed to God when he says, hey, you should probably do something different. If you want to hear God, if you want to see God, if you want to understand and to know God, if you want to have confidence in God, then a good place to begin is to align your will with God's will. Start by wanting the things that God wants and see how much you come to understand about God. In the prophet Jeremiah, we hear the wonderful news that if we seek God with all our hearts, we will find Him. If you want to see God's face, then let that longing for Him grow up in you. Cultivate that longing. Seek Him with all your heart. God will grant you the desires of your heart if your desire is to see Him. If you want to see God, you will see God. What prevents us from seeing God is half-hearted desire. If I'm mildly interested in God, you know, maybe as interested in God as I am interested in gardening, then, well, I shouldn't hold my breath waiting to see God's face. The promise is if we seek God with all of our hearts, we will find Him. So where are you this morning? How are things between you and Jesus? Do you want to know God? Or are you keeping Him at arm's length where He's a little bit safer? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Knowing Jesus requires of us that we lay down our lives at the throne of Jesus. Which is just another way of saying that we have to lay down uh, our wills. If we are to know the truth and to find new life in Christ. I understand the difficulty because I've been on both sides of that divide. This morning, I invite you to know God. To know Him as your Father. To know Jesus as your Savior and as your brother. This is offered to you freely. If you want it with all of your heart. Let us pray.
Father God, you have made us to know you. That's what we were designed for. You've made us to love you and to be in a relationship with you, and yet so often we wander away from you for all kinds of crazy reasons. And we make all kinds of excuses. God, this morning, the favor that I ask is that you would raise up in our hearts just a longing for you, a desire for you. I pray that we might crave you more than the things of the flesh. Lord, we know that we only rest when we rest in you. And we only find our peace when we find our place in you. So I pray this morning that you would make us restful and peaceful by drawing us to yourself so that we might know you more fully and really and truly and honestly. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.